I was catching up with a family friend a while back, we were at a gathering of sorts, and somehow the topic got on our college experiences, and she started telling me about her time in Tri-Delta at Chapel Hill, a sorority there. It wasn't a very good experience for her, unfortunately. All of her sister's times were filled up by working hard or partying hard, and there was nothing really in between, and so she had a tough time fitting in, and, and despite living in the house for two years, she didn't have many friends. But she was sure to mention that her sorority, Tri-Delta, included some of the most rich and pretty girls on campus at Chapel Hill. She said, you know, there's an interesting story of why our house is located where it is. I said, oh, really? Yeah, it's located right across the street from the president's house. But it wasn't always there. At one time, it was on the other side of Franklin Street, but when the daughter of George Steinbrenner, the former owner of the New York Yankees, became a sister, he wanted our house to be in a better location because he thought his daughter deserved the best. So when this house came up for sale across the street from the president's house in a prime location on Franklin Street, George Steinbrenner bought it and gave it as a gift to the sorority because he said, I want the president to get up every morning and see across the street as he's getting his newspaper, the best-looking girls on campus. <laughs> now, that's vanity. She didn't have to share that story with us, but she did because she is proud and thinks she belongs to that group. Jesus said, be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before people so that you will be seen by them, for if you do... That is your reward, and you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So at first glance, this passage seems to be about vanity, or about Jesus warning against attracting attention to ourselves because of our looks, our talents, or our good works. But if we dig a little deeper, it's actually more than that. It's about motive, too. What did Jesus say? So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by people. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. In most societies, ancient or modern, giving away money in great amounts is seen as a sign of prestige, success, and power. The biggest man or the biggest woman is the one who can give away the most. And it's only normal that many in Jesus' day and in our own day want their wealth to be known through their giving. So they wait for the right time and place, for doing so will give them status and power. Some of you may remember how Warren Buffett invested $5 billion in Bank of America a while back, creating a national headline, a huge influx of money into a struggling bank at the time, and it raised Buffett's stature. Or think about colleges named after wealthy families, local ones like Campbell or Duke, or school buildings named after prominent people, or even churches named after wealthy members. Jesus uses exaggerated language to declare that people who live and give with visibility in mind 
announced their actions with a trumpet blast. And they have gotten what they wanted, to be honored by people. Jesus says, though, that while such giving may be generous, even normal for wealthy people, it's not Christian. For the giving has been done for a secular reward, not a heavenly one. And those that are Christians and yet give for all the world to see are hypocrites, according to Jesus. If we were Christians, though, we want a heavenly reward for our giving and for our lives, so Jesus says we need to live out our Christianity more in secret. What did he say? So when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. In other words, the right hand is the favored hand. The right hand is the one most people write with and work with and give with. But if you give with your left hand, Jesus says, fewer people will notice. He also says, and when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites who love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by people. But when you pray, first go into your room. Close the door and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. It's about motive, you see. It's, just, it's about whether we do things so that others will give us honor or stature and be normal, or whether we are Christian and do things for God when the doors are shut. Motive. I have two friends in college, both come from very similar backgrounds, um, stable families, upper middle class, smart, athletic. One grew up in the Methodist church, the other grew up in the Episcopal church. The Methodist is from Houston, Texas. He majored in English at Wake Forest. He could have done a lot of things, but just before college, the stuttering problem he had growing up went away. He learned how to overcome it. And with that, Darren felt like he could do anything. In every passing year I knew him at college, he grew more confident and began to buy more expensive clothes. He became known as Mr. Joseph A. Banks. <laughs> and he kept on turning away from the Christianity he grew up with and towards the American idea of success. Darren went to law school after college. He now works at a major law firm in Houston. I'm sure he will do some good there. I'm sure he will. But all of us know as of his friends that he's living this life for status and honor and wealth. That's his motive now. Compare that story to my friend, the Episcopalian. He's from Birmingham, Alabama majored in history. During college, he also had a turning point. He discovered that the ADD medicine that he had been taking most of his life was hurting him more as a person than helping him, so he stopped taking it. Became a better student. He became a better writer. He started to look more deeply into his Christian faith. After college, he didn't know what to do next, so he went, he turned to his Episcopal church again, went back home, and was appointed in a direction to work for a nonprofit for a year barely earning above minimum wage, about $20,000. During that time when he was working with the poor, he did a lot of thinking, reflecting, praying about what he should do next. And after about six months, he felt like God was calling him to use his gifts to treat and heal people like this or go into medicine. But that meant he had to go back to school 
for two years to take classes in pre-med, which he did not take in college. And so he did at the University of Birmingham in Alabama. It felt a little awkward to be in class with people at a different stage of life than you, you know. It was also humbling. But now he's in a fellowship after medical school to become an ophthalmologist and take regular trips abroad to do cataract surgery so that blind people in third world countries can see again. David is living this life for God. He's talked to me several times about this calling he feels on his life. That's a very different motive. Two friends in college, similar backgrounds, similar gifts, both grew up as Christians, but both are living lives with completely different motives now. At first glance, Jesus appears to be talking about vanity in this passage. But if we dig a little deeper, Jesus seems to be getting at motive here and what we live our lives for. And if we dig even deeper still, Jesus gets to his ultimate point. It's really about who we worship. He says, and when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. You see, pagans back in Jesus' day had many gods, and there were so many, it was hard to keep them straight. So the pagans would go on and on when they prayed, trying to remember the name of the God they needed to pray to, or say the name of the God correctly, or address it in the right way, so that they could get the particular God on their side and manipulate it to its, their own particular needs. Now, we don't have these named gods anymore, like the god of wine or revelry, Dionysus, or the god of beauty, Venus, or the god of all power, Zeus. But that doesn't mean they don't exist. Everyone has a god, you know, even atheists. Everyone lives for something. Everyone talks about something and goes on and on about it more than anything else. Everyone has a goal for their life. It could involve gods or what we call Idols in the church like money or power or prestige or beauty or even your alma mater. But at the end of the day, Jesus makes it simple. He boils it down to two. He says, in this life, you either, worth, you either worship yourself or you worship God. You either go on and on and try to make yourself look good according to the idols of the world or you simply stay humble. Pray the Lord's Prayer, trust God with your needs, and align your whole life around that phrase, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. My college pastor once shared the story of a couple he once met when they came to his church to raise money for their work. They are medical missionaries in the jungles of South America. The hospital they are at has three doctors. The husband is a surgeon. The wife is the family physician. There's also another physician, an orthopedic. And there are others who work there. We call them licensed practical nurses and one who organized the paperwork too. They run a hospital in an area down there, the only hospital in the area, for 200,000 people. And amazingly, with a few people, they, they do a great job. Every year in the summer, this wife and husband go on furlough. 
and they come back to the States, and some medical missionaries then go down to the jungles of South America and hold everything together, while the couple crisscrosses the country trying to raise money to buy equipment, to buy medication, to keep the hospital up and running and functional for another year. They get very little money for themselves. They hardly make anything. I mean, their patients can't pay. In fact, she said a lot of times when our patients come, they bring vegetables. Uh, that's how they pay us. That's sacrificial for them. She said, we have other patients who bring us clothing, hand-sewn garments, shirts, moccasins, for this is all they have. They don't have any cash. And Michael, my college pastor, always loves stories like, like this. He's blown away by them. But he was also really uh, just impressed by this couple because they are brilliant people, Rhodes Scholars actually, who had other options. He was offered a position at Yale Medical School, and not just a faculty position. He was offered to be chair of the department. And she, every bit his equal, intellectually and professionally, was offered a position on the faculty as well. And each was offered, alongside of it, a private practice to work, to do medicine. The two of them together, the total package would have been about $750,000 a year, and that was many years ago. And they said, no, no, we're going to practice medicine in the jungle of South America for vegetables and hand-sewn shirts. At the end of that night, after everybody had shaken their hands and said something to them, my college pastor had some time with them, and he, he was just so overwhelmed. He said, you know, I am so overcome when I hear stories like yours. It's just remarkable. I can't believe that people like you who have so many other options that are tempting, you would want to be in the jungle of South America. You really want to be down there. It's like spending time with that missionary Albert Schweitzer. This is so great. And the woman responded so gracefully, thank you, thank you. You know, we're really not like Schweitzer. The husband, he was polite, but he was more blunt. He looked at Michael with a look and that said, What's wrong with you? He said, what makes you think we want to be in the jungle of South America? What I want, he said, to be, is to be on the faculty of Yale Medical School. And she wants the same thing. And Michael didn't see that one coming. He didn't know how to respond. So after a pause, he finally said, so, so why are you treating patients in the jungle? And he looked at his wife, the husband, and they smiled. Apparently, they've been asked this question many times before. He said, because we are convinced that this is where God wants us to be. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus says it's really about who we worship. At the end of the day, that's what this passage is about. It's about whether we worship ourselves and go on and make ourselves look good according to the idols of this world and be like the pagans and the hypocrites, or it's about whether we worship the God of Jesus and say that short Lord's Prayer and trust this God with our needs and align our lives, our entire lives around that phrase, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The difference in being normal and Christian is the willingness, the willingness 
to live out that prayer. To close today, we normally close with prayer. And I was just going to pray a hymn. But I decided I'll try to sing it. So how about we, uh, Lori's going to give me an F sharp. And I'm going to sing, Take My Life and Let It Be. Play that one more time. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. Take my moments and my days, let them flow in ceaseless praise. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy love. Take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for thee. Take my will and make it thine, it shall be no longer mine. Take my heart, it is thine own, it shall be thy royal throne. Take my love, my Lord, I pour, at thy feet its treasure store. Take myself and I will be ever only all for thee. That's my prayer for each one of you.